Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The sharper-eared listener will have no problem whatsoever this week spotting that at the time of recording. I was just coming out of the back of a, a fairly decent cold that was playing merry havoc with me vocal cords. I mention this purely by way of a preemptive defence of what could be the most poorly chosen simile of my career to date. Uh, so you can enjoy that. I, I like to fondly imagine it was because of the painkillers. Alternatively, it might be the shape of things to come. Anyway, we're talking music today in the East End of London, and I'm fairly certain it would be easy enough to craft a weekend drinking game around this podcast and the uses in it of the words Baroque and Offer. I'll leave that to those people of legal age and responsible disposition. Incidentally, if you fancy finding out what my favourite day in London would consist of, my favourite London building and other must-know facts, head over to cabbieblog.com, where typing my name into the near-invisible search box on the right-hand side of the page will produce the London Grill, which the writer of that blog, David, who's a licensed black taxi driver has put together for now though it's the 30th of may 2014 i'm n quentin wolf this is londonist out loud hey baby let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound you ain't never seen the light before just a stone throw from your front door It's a moderately sunny day today here near Spitalfields, and the buildings consequently are like ovens, a combination of the computers churning out heat, and the heat rising to the top of the building, uh, which is where you find me now, in a sort of a converted garret of of some description. Um, We're looking down onto Brushfield Street across the way we can see the old London fruit and wool exchange. With me, the CEO of Spitalfields Music, Abigail Pogson. Hi. Hi. What are we up here to talk about? I think we're here to talk about Spitalfields music and everything that it does. The most immediate thing that it's going to do is make a summer festival, which starts in, well, at the time of speaking, uh, a month. I think that um, when uh, you're listening to this, you might be hearing it uh, about a week before we start on Friday the 6th of June. 
Friday the 6th of June and it's it's a big old festival and I sort of find myself circulating around this area a fair bit and was surprised and a little bit ashamed to discover that it's been going on for 40 years and it's crept under my radar so I'm going to correct that and hopefully correct that for anybody who's uh, as yet unfamiliar with the festival what's the what's the scope of the thing well the as you said the charity itself was started almost 40 years ago as a summer festival which happens in June it's continued um, over that period and since the summer festival started other things have have kind of added to what the charity does so we now also run a, a winter festival which happens in the middle of December each year and a really uh, big year-round learning and participation program which uh, works with people of all ages only further east in Barking and Dagenham and Newham so the reach of what Spitalfields Music does is quite broad but as I say the most immediate thing on the horizon is the summer festival which is the biggest of the two and is a mix of amazing music uh, made in lots of different Spitalfield spaces. So from the really iconic uh, Hawksmoor Church at the end of Brushfield Street, where we're sitting now, through to Village Underground, Wilton's Music Hall, some of the front rooms around around Spitalfield, some of the old uh, weavers' houses. So a whole range of, of spaces. And one of the joys of uh, programming uh, the summer festival in particular with that range of venues is that the music and the space can align and you can make something that just wouldn't happen in any other part of London. Now trying to let myself off the hook I'm wondering if that's maybe why I hadn't encountered it or or knowingly encountered it because what I imagine when I heard Spitalfields Festival was that three streets in any direction from the uh, the market here would be closed down they'd be bunting all over the place and everything would be happening in one but it it sounds as though it's decentralised and what about these different venues how does the character of each work with the the music I mean I know Wilton's reasonably well for example what's going on there? Yeah the music that we programme is uh, really eclectic and that's because um, we take inspiration from the the venue so we make sure that um, the work that we're programming really suits where it's going to be performed so as you can imagine in somewhere like Christchurch which is 300 years old this year the first stone was uh, laid by Nicholas Hawksmoor it took them a while to get it built but they started in 1714 that really suits um, baroque music and music from that period acoustically it's absolutely brilliant for that kind of thing well what's the detail there why so why why acoustically does it suit it it's just the shape of the building the nature of the the stone the the kind of textures in the building just really support that kind of soft but broad uh, sound that early music will will make so it's really great for for example this summer we've got the orchestra of the age of enlightenment as associate artists it's really great for the programs that they've uh, put together but the, the part of the reasons why we're in lots and lots of different spaces is that different people want to hear different music and one of the kind of key things about our work is that we're trying to offer music to as many people as as possible so a counterpoint to the OAE as associates is um brilliant young clarinetist um, Aaron Ghosh who is doing a series for us also as an associate artist and I think he will attract quite a different crowd of, of people.
I sort of want to unpack some of the musical styles there. It took me a long while to find out what early music was. I didn't really know what sort of instruments I might be expecting to hear there or what style of music it might be. So maybe we could come back and unpack some of that stuff as well. Organisationally, this sounds like you, you are taking on professionally the sort of thing that if we were talking about one venue running a sequence of music uh, and different performers across the length of time that we're talking about here, that would be quite a handful. But you're effectively running a whole bunch of different festivals under an umbrella all at once. You clearly crazy. Yes. <laughs> Why the hell would you do that, Jess? It's certainly not the easiest way to, to 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 do that. But as I say, the driving thing is that it means that you are open and making an offer to a wide range of people. My experience of uh, people coming to concerts or events is that they put a really strong attachment to the venue and the location where something is happening. And some venues uh, just, I think, feel more comfortable for some people than, than for others. And that's a really strong uh, motivation for us as a, as a charity. The whole point of the thing starting nearly 40 years ago was um, it was actually twofold it was firstly it's it's very hard to imagine now but Spitalfields was outside of things, it was really off uh, the mainstream, it was somewhere that um, you know, taxis wouldn't go down Brick Lane it, it, was, it was kind of out of um, central London even 40 years ago even 40 years ago there's a kind of urban myth that when um, the first festivals happened um, for those that were coming um, from other parts of London there was a bus from Bishopsgate down to the end of down Brushfield Street which is a very short distance to Christchurch to kind of uh, show people where to go I think that's a myth, but it's certainly something that, that kind of lingers in the air. And the whole point of, of starting a, a music festival in this area was in saying there's a whole population of, of London here that should have access to brilliant music. Let's make it possible. And that happened to align with the fact that Christchurch um, has an amazing acoustic for a particular kind of music. So it really... Um, you know, it really made sense to make concerts in it at the very beginning. Now, this is reminding me very much of the sort of ethos, although it's getting on for 100 years later, that seems to have been behind the founding of the Bishopsgate Institute, which, of course, is just up at the end of, give or take, at the end of uh, Brushfield Street. But I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that that same sort of thinking was going on as recently as 40 years ago, so that, that kind of uh, Victorian philanthropy that we find ourselves talking about very often on this show. What was the lingering spirit all about that? because now we're talking sort of post-Second World War, uh, 70s, 80s. What was that spirit doing here then? And we don't seem to hear too much about it in that period. Yeah, I suppose that's right, because that, that was the period when a lot of the architecture of the area was under severe threat. You know, there were kind of plans to really kind of knock down some buildings that now we look at and and think gosh that's you know that's absolutely extraordinary for example piece of Georgian architecture that you know been very carefully restored and uh, for me in all honesty I, I don't know why it all, why it came together at that particular moment but for me it's an example of how the arts and artists can be they can be they can really sort of point to something and help communities individuals 
cities even look at things in a different way and certainly that thing of looking at Christchurch in a different way thinking about well we could put music in there and drawing people into the area celebrating the area as something where uh, positive and exciting things happened rather than thinking about it as somewhere that was other and that then moved to the whole restoration of the market and the kind of renaissance of the area it's you know very strongly connected with that and the, that whole move in this area has been led by artists you know you see that in lots of places in cities and and beyond and I think that's one of the amazing things about the arts and artists that they can just focus something in a way that mm. other things can't quite often that's very interesting. We were talking to composer James Hesford about uh, six months ago and thinking about Islington, and he was saying very much the same thing, that it was musicians who were, well, essentially uh, responsible for the house prices shooting up because they brought uh, cultural capital into the area and, and pushed it. So, I mean, Spitalfield's music is why we, we can't afford uh, flats around here. <laughs> that's, that's what we're saying. Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying, of course. <laughs> was the festival and Spitalfield music did they appear at the same time or was the festival done by volunteers for a little bit or how, how did it work yeah that's right it's, it started as um a spitalfields uh, festival and we became spitalfields music about five years ago when the charity looked at what it was doing and realized well firstly we've got two festivals we're not just one and secondly the depth and the range of the year-round learning and participation program was such that we wanted to really acknowledge that in 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 the name and the fact that we're a year-round operation as a charity and that that is as fundamental to what we do as the two festivals are as well so i'm just i suppose i'm trying to understand the model of the reason for existing because it seems it seems like it doesn't have a focal point or like there's an anxiety about it just having one purpose it seems to want to be diffuse well i suppose it's got a single charitable purpose which is to change lives and aspirations through music that's that's our, our kind of our big hairy goal if you like and um therefore the festivals and the projects that we run on a year-round basis are ways in which we aim to do that and um the what the, the the thing that we're aiming to do is to reach as many people as we can within east london um, with all of, with all of that activity. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so uh, the, the sort of cultural change that we've touched on that's happened over the last however long, you know, it's, it's no longer the case that the East End in its entirety is a deprived area. I wouldn't presume to say to what extent the media class have change that landscape but presumably when at the outset that that charitable purpose could quite easily be aligned comfortably with the entire east end um are there challenges now in making sure that you are helping the aspirations of those who are perhaps less privileged or is it equally spread across everybody who happens to live in the area how how do you how do you manage that balance different activities reach different people and that's one of the beauties of having a range of uh, of activity um i think you know there is this popular myth that the area has gentrified but we we know from other parts of london that the picture is always very mixed and and, and ever changing and ever changing and um that's particularly the case in this part part of part of town one of the particular characteristics of this part of London is the growth of the young population so the youth population in East London is growing at a faster rate than in other parts of the in any other part of the UK and um, 
one of the things that we we do is we try to find ways to make sure that all young people have access to music that it's a that that it's offered in a very even-handed way and that it's not about what your background is or what kind of um, opportunities you might get through your through your own family but that um, we can reach a really wide cross-section of the population which there is within Tower Hamlets and as I said we're starting um over the last couple of years, we've been doing more and more work in Barking and, and Newham and different profile, but still the same kind of thing. Well, there's two directions I want to go in at once here. One is about that age issue that you mentioned. Perhaps, perhaps we could start there, but it also might be useful because we've spoken in the past uh, a little bit about the sort of Brick Lane area and that um, uh, that cosmopolitan mix of ethnicities and uh, all sorts of different people around here. People um, might be less familiar with what's going on in uh, Newham more generally, uh, Barking, so perhaps we could visit those areas and, and uh, sort of describe those but what about this you think when you say you are you thinking in terms of young people coming here to work or are we talking uh, sort of a birth surge and, and younger people coming up that way it is a mix but um at its base is just a birth you know there are, there are more people being born here and 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 growing up here um, than there are in other parts of the uk but there is also there is an inclination to move to this part of town um, in, in part because, you know, in, in certain um, parts, rents are cheaper and all of that kind of thing. It's, you know, it's a good place to live as well as a young person. I don't know if this is about to be an indelicate question, but why, why so many young... I mean, I know why so many young people. I know how that happens. But, I mean, why is this part of town um, experiencing that surge? That I don't know. It's probably density of population and the profile of the population and traditions within within those populations but I don't know for sure Ah, uh, th- you might be thinking of bigger, bigger, bigger families or something like that yeah precisely mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and that's interesting for um, for us because I mean we've always uh, as a as a charity focused on young people and um, this year um, the charity was one of the first um, arts organisations to form um, what we refer to as kind of education programmes um uh, so this year um, marks 25 years of our learning and participation program and um, recently we started to think for example about how we can make concerts for the very young so um, we've been um, working with a couple of really brilliant artists to make a series of um, music theatre pieces for naught to two year olds using uh, Baroque repertoire and using <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, using uh, players for example this summer it will involve players from the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment um, singers um, from the 16 for example and these are these are musicians who are touring internationally they're you know they're they're of the highest quality and one of the things that's really fundamental for us is that the quality must be high whatever the context whoever it's being offered to everybody has the right to hear brilliant music brilliantly played and so the series is called musical rumpus it's um, about 40 minutes worth of music and we take um, an existing piece and take real music from it, adapt it for a slightly smaller ensemble um, and shape it so that there's a story which um, 0-2s can, can engage with. It's made in a way which means that they can get up and walk around, they can touch it as well as see it and listen to it. So they don't have to sit on their... Um, 
their adults' lap, and um, this is. Well, they can they can sort of reach touch the instruments. As that's, that's right. So they can move around and um, touch the instruments. They can touch the set. They can touch the singers. There's a lot which is built into the show, which involves their participation so things to shake or things to build or things to put somewhere and it's built on you know I'm I'm getting very geeky now it's built on early years practice so on what we know about how young people learn but it's also at a very basic level an opportunity for um, that age group to hear um, live instruments live singers up close the very best and what we found um, in using Baroque repertoire is that because the instruments often sound quite soft, it's particularly suited to that age group. It's a very pleasing sound. Right, as opposed to a bit of Karl Orff or Wagner or something. Or a drum kit in the corner, you know, yeah. a modern drum kit in the corner, for example. That is absolutely wonderful. We know, don't we, that the neural pathways are all being uh, formed in those early years. So w- what are you hoping that uh, you're engendering uh, an appreciation of music in the most general sense or is there a different aim well i guess at its most fundamental we're hoping to contribute to the development of the people that that come along you know to contribute to that kind of cognitive and social development um we know that exposure to music and to these kind of activities really helps that and we also know that certain parts of the population might have more access to that than others so we're taking that work through East London, placing it in libraries, uh, children's centres, spaces that people trust, and therefore reaching people who may otherwise not have access to that kind of thing. At another level, I guess what you're hoping is that children and their families might enjoy it as an experience and might um, build a habit of coming to the arts and um, and engaging with music and live performance um, and be curious about it and want to find out more. So you're flying the flag for the arts as well. I laughed when you started talking about this. I laughed because you talked about participation and I really thought you were suggesting that you were getting naught to 2 year olds playing Baroque music. <laughs> so how, how could that possibly work? The obvious follow-on question would be uh, about the reception of this and I would be a fool to think as CEO that you wouldn't say, well, actually, it's, it's pretty good because you, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing if it wasn't being well-received. So if I take that as a, a given, and maybe we could return to that in more detail, but do you find any negative reaction, any hostility or resistance to, to this sort of general idea? Um, not particularly, but of course, with anything like this, there's always the option not to engage with it. You know, we're not forcing people to engage with it. So... If people aren't interested in it, then they can choose not to not to come to it. The thing that's been most interesting recently is where the partners that we've been working on it with have started to use these performances as a centre point for other activity. So to show uh, families that are coming to the centre for this performance other opportunities and to signpost to other activity that they could get involved in to um, put in place opportunities for parents to get involved in actually running the shows so that they can build skills and um, count them towards qualifications so for me the interesting thing about this 
a kind of activity is how can we contribute to London and London life in a really broad sense? Well, that brings us very nicely to the subject we touched on a second ago, which is those other areas nearby and the sort of profile. I guess if there's one reason that Barking has uh, crossed my radar I, I don't think I've ever been to Barking, uh, but it's crossed my radar in the news in terms of the, the politics there, which in, the, let's say, the last 10 years, probably going back b- before then as well, of course, have been split along race issue lines every now and again. So maybe we could look at what Barking is and how you're working there, but also a picture of the, the racial diversity of the area more generally and how that plays into what you're doing. It's really mixed and the thing that characterises all of the three boroughs that we are working in at the moment is the pace of change, um, both of the population and also their physical environment. We've talked about uh, Spitalfields where things started and the, the physical change here, but it's still going on. There's you know huge development around Oldgate and a huge development up by Shoreditch High Streets. It's- kind of constant pace of change and that that plays through I mean you know Newham most obviously most famously through the Olympics and all of that that development has you know changed physically and our role as a charity is to celebrate what's there and to create positive things and also to create opportunities for people to connect with their local area and to um through music and, th- and through the arts to explore what community and what place are and whatever that means right now and who knows what that really means right now you know you, you asked me to describe what's what's happening in embarking in, in that's you know um who knows in in lots of ways who could who could possibly say but the thing that we're doing is um and i think the thing that the arts do amazingly is that they create opportunities for people to reflect on what they see or feel or or are engaged with at a particular time at a particular moment and connect that with where they are and uh, you know the context that that they're in there's a a certain vagueness about some of that uh, and necessarily so i see i see why that's there i suppose there's something sort of lingering in my mind that well you're saying that you don't know what's embarking it's a little bit intangible at the same time there must be at least a suspicion or an awareness or call it what you will that in general there are less opportunities there there is more of a need for the thing that you're offering uh, which might be more readily available to somebody in a better off more privileged part of town for example I'm wondering when, when you think about getting people to engage with the area that they're in, what sort of results that throws up if the area is, you know, in some ways troubled, whatever that might mean. I think every area has positives, and it's about creating opportunities for people to explore those those positives or explore what's what's ahead of them. It's not about making uh, calls on, um, you know, there's good stuff happening here, there's, there isn't good stuff happening there. It's about people exploring what their context is. And um, I think that the amazing thing about London, and particularly this, this part of town, is that that's a very, very complex thing. You know, you walk around a corner, you can be in a completely different world in, in, in London. Well, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there are binaries within any area, nor that there are some areas that are kind of good and some areas that are bad or anything like that. I'm, I'm more sort of wondering whether... Um, with, with a lot of 
uh, community work and a lot of outreach aspects of different projects there is the focus on what makes this area special kind of thing but isn't there also a legitimate use for art to explore things that are are troubling for example I don't necessarily want to just focus on the negatives but maybe there's something slightly artificial about only focusing on positives that can be found yeah absolutely I mean you know art and its capacity to um, allow us to look at things that are difficult or challenging is um, unrivaled to, to my view so yes of course and that's that's great um, I suppose what I'm not saying is that you know our view is not that you know if you if you bring art in it'll all be all right it's a, it's about making an offer and being part of a wider community being part of a mix um, so for example working in partnership with um, the Royal London Hospital and Vital Arts to run run projects and being part of basically being a part of the Tower Hamlets community um, but yeah absolutely the arts are great for looking at difficult questions and challenging situations so, so part of this is your seeking to give people an additional vocabulary yeah the arts in the broadest sense and music quite specifically um allow people to i mean some people describe it as a chance to step back some people choose it as describe it as a different language different ways of looking at it but it, it this kind of engagement can take you into a different realm well we'll be uh, coming back in just a moment we're going to get a word from uh fine sponsors at audible who are offering words in audiobook form i'll be back in just a moment with abigail pogson Londonist out loud is sponsored by audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf with me, Abigail Pogson, the CEO of Spitalfields Music, which is all year round and uh, spreading like a uh, an omelette. But what a weird metaphor. <laughs> I suddenly realised there were no good spreading things that were going to reflect well on Spitalfields music. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, shall I take that? Let's not bother taking that again. It's just too... I don't think I've ever heard it described as an omelette before. <laughs> you can have that one on me. <laughs> um, what can we say about the history of Spitalfields? How far back does your knowledge extend? Um, well, I've, I've been knocking around for about five years. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't believe it's the rule with history that you're only allowed to know as far back as... What you've, what you've um, been around for. Well, the, I suppose the most... The thing that people refer to first, first and foremost about Spitalfields is as an area of arrival and departure and one of the kind of key things about the area, both in terms of its vibe and its communities and... Physically, I suppose, as well, is that you can see those cycles of people arriving, living here, making it theirs, some of them moving on, some of them staying. And so that you've got a situation where now you know, there are over, over 100 first languages um, spoken in the space of um, you know, four square miles. I suppose the other thing that, that people often associate is the Georgian period, because at the front door of the area, which is to say where we're sitting now, um, the market and then Commercial Road, there are some pretty iconic examples of that that architecture that, um, I mean, you know, 
I, I mentioned five years, it still does slightly take my breath away when I walk, when I approach the area from Liverpool Street and walk round the corner and you see that the, the spire is still, it still sort of knocks me out a bit. But there's a lot more beyond that. You mentioned earlier on the, the kind of Victorian period and uh, Bishopsgate and Toynbee Hall and Oxford House and those, you know, there's a whole kind of movement and development. And what I find really interesting is the um, those layers and um, how they're represented both both architecturally, but also in the as you move through the borough, the different um, kind of parts of the, the borough and the different communities that are there. And we, we know it's called Spitalfields because it used to be fields. Until scarily recently, in fact, and I, I think I'm right in saying that Henry the... Uh, one of these facts is going to be wrong, um, but I think it was Henry who used to use the area for firing cannon and, and testing them out or something like that. And then, um, and then, of course, when we think about Bishop's Gate, we know that that was one of the gates into... The, uh, the walled city of London. So we're outside the outside the city here, I guess. Yes, yeah, we are. And um, well, Spittal comes from hospital, and so um, when the area was uh, recently developed, um, you know, there were various points of pause as um, sets of bones were found, and you know, kind of burial uh, sites. And I think that it was it was very much you know where you. You chucked the stuff that you didn't need. You know, the, the the city put what it didn't need, and you know, that actually included people um, in lots of ways. Well, that's right, because anywhere with ditch after its name, Houndsditch and Shoreditch, and uh, I think I'm missing one. Where exactly that? That's right. Yes, my top London tip for uh, exploring this kind of history is the Museum of London. They've got um, it's amazing to look at their maps across years and to look at the kind of the evolution and the shape of the city and how it's moved if you look at London globally how it's swung west and now swinging back east and there was for a a very long time a very um, clear mark down Bishopsgate of, and it was as simple as in and out That's very interesting what you do, I really never imagined that, despite having in the last couple of weeks recorded episodes where we're in the east of town and looking at all the development going on there, a lot of housing appearing, a lot of the housing that's already there, really relatively new in comparison with a lot of other uh, stuff in London, so do you think the centre of London is moving ever towards the east? I think that it is moving back eastwards at the moment. Coming home yeah yeah <laughs> so that means you're going to be in the center of london very very soon we will we will i mean i think that uh, around here on a saturday night it's like soho in lots of ways we can't go a step further you've mentioned that you arrived here five six years are you a londoner what was your path into both the role and this part of town um uh, my vowels probably betray me i'm from the north originally so i'm yeah but i've li- i've lived in london for my working life and uh really love it as a city and therefore and i'd always worked in music in fact i started out in opera but i'd always worked in music and was really really interested in this role and this charity because Firstly, because it's in a part of town that I really love, and I love the fact that it's a very um, 
it's a very strongly local charity as well as you know it's, it's got a national profile it, pe- people come to it from other parts of town um, you know proportion of our audience are tourists and, and visitors to London but um, there is a very strong strong sense within the festival programming as well as the year-round program of connection with the air and it goes back to you know where we started which is that the the programme is made in part in response to the venues and the spaces that, that are available and, and celebrating you know, both the history and the future of the area. We work, I've, I've talked quite a bit about early music, but we also commission a lot of music and make work that's having its first performances. And that's a really important part of this part of town you know there's always a sense of kind of the new and the 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 fresh and that's what inspires that programming that you know making new work is really it's really important that that, uh, programming what level of freedom do you have when it comes to setting the program maybe commissioning something maybe following your own tastes of course it's going to be tempered by the requirements of what, what you're aiming to achieve but how much latitude do you get well i think in a way it's a blank it's a blank sheet of paper and um i th- i think that the opportunities are there in what artists want to make and how they want to um engage with the platform that we've got in the fest in the festivals and the area and the approach that we take so what we commission comes out of conversations with artists can you flesh that out a little bit? I'm trying to imagine how that happens. It sounds very organic. How does that happen? What's the, the meeting point between the two? Do you sort of bring people in and organise a conversation to figure something out? Or is it sort of chance encounters and your time spent in the business? And How does it work? It's a mixture, I suppose. It is reasonably organic and it's often, you know, you, know, you can't quite quite see when something is going to form into this actually is a commission this is a new piece of music that we're going to schedule and we're going to happen so it's often about an ongoing dialogue and um us there's a bunch of us in the team who hear a lot of work meet artists are engaged with what's what's going on and what people are what kind of work people are making so it's a mixture of that and saying okay how about it what's you know what do you want to do what are your ideas so a lot of this must depend on artists wanting to be part of this process because you surely couldn't be doing this without not just the interest but but really achieving momentum through adding the momentum of the artists themselves yeah absolutely yeah and fortunately a lot are but also it's possible to i think you know through the process of a conversation figure out whether it is the right match or not whether you know whether we should be working together or not and that's you know that's part of what the process is we'll say something about precisely whose momentum you are harnessing in just a second okay so of course i'm going to put you on the spot and ask the question you shouldn't ask here what's your favorite act in this no but what do you like if if you had to pick two or three acts out or performances out of the offering in this summer's festival and i know it's going to be difficult because there's lots of good things to say about all of these what sort of things might you highlight for um quality i don't know them being the first time they've performed or something that's not being done elsewhere or what would you highlight well there are two collaborations uh, between composers and visual artists that i think are going to be really interesting i think they're going to be really interesting they're, they're brand You're not biased in any way I'm, I'm not biased in any way at all um they're brand new so i don't know for sure but i um 
uh, I've got a strong hunch that it's going to be um, really brilliant work. So one is a collaboration between James Weeks, composer, and Sam Belenfante, uh, visual artist. And their piece is being made at Lime Wharf. It's a new piece called Mural, which the audience will sit in the middle of and be surrounded by um, by the sound and the, and the visuals. And then... Um, very very different but the same kind of collaboration uh, composer Bryn Harrison and visual artist Tim Head are making a piece for Rich Mix um, which again um, I haven't seen um, because it's a commission it's a brand new new piece but I'm really excited by the conversations that I've heard between all of those artists as they're building work together so that's one set of work that I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, can I jump on those? How, when, you, when you're commissioning a piece of work, to what extent do you set out a menu of the sort of things that you'd like it to do? Or do they come to you with half an idea and you say, yes, that's it? Or is it a completely blank canvas and you just trust them? Where does it lie? It really varies. It, it completely varies. Um, the conversations are all different. So sometimes um, an artist might come and say, I would really like to make this for this for, for Wilton's Music Hall for example I've got this this vision for it and I've come to you because I know that it's the kind of thing that you're programming and that you're you're working with um, and it's the kind of thing that that audiences come to you for um, or right at the other end of the spectrum there might be somebody whose work we've seen or encountered or, or thought that's that's interesting and we might initiate a conversation in a very kind of general sense of what you know, what are you thinking next? What's on the horizon? And then, you know, a piece of work might evolve through that kind of conversation. We might start to suggest venues. We might suggest collaborators. Um, we might suggest themes or topics. So it really does vary hugely. And that's in part about the way an artist works because that's, you know, there is no single, you know, everybody's... Every individual works differently and, um, you know, artists come at their work in lots and lots of different ways. So for us as, I'm getting very, very, very nerdy now, for us as producers, it's about responding to that and picking up on, on that. Well, yeah, that kind of nerdy knowledge that you're talking about, it does seem that's really very important. You've got to genuinely understand the, I don't know, the, the trajectory or the period in the artistic sense that this particular artist is in, surely. You've got to kind of know where they're, roughly where they're coming from and where, where they're likely to go with a piece if it's, uh, if it's a new commission. I think there has to be a willingness to connect with that and to, to, to understand it and to support an artist. There's no point pulling in an opposite direction if it's not the right moment. And what else would you highlight from this year's uh, summer festival? Well, if you're... So so something completely different at the other end of the spectrum. um, Some absolutely brilliant Baroque music. It's sort of headlined by the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, who I've already mentioned. I'm getting the impression there's a lot of Baroque music going on here. Yeah, I think that there's... There's a balance of uh, Baroque and contemporary music. Those are two things that, if you were just talking about two things um, in terms of the programming, that's what you would that's what you would point to. For example, the Sixteen, the English Concert, who are really well established practitioners, musicians um, in this area, and then um, we've got the debut in our festival of um, a younger ensemble who working with early repertoire called Fieri Ensemble, it's a group of young singers just emerging onto 
onto the scene making really, really interesting music. So if you're interested to try something historic, there's, there's a lot there as well. Just to nail this down in my mind, I guess classical music isn't a strong suit. I've got a, a bit of an idea. But how would you define Baroque music, given that it makes up such a portion of the content? What makes Baroque music Baroque music? It's music that was written out of a very particular spirit, um, which we now, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, connect with its time and what was what was happening in terms of um, who was on the throne, what the cultural influences were at the time, what you know, what was um, what was going on in the kind of kind of broader cultural life of the nation. It's a you know, it's a European phenomenon, um, and that was part of it. That you know, the the kind of cross fertilisation was it was an interesting thing. Um, I think the other thing, I mean, obviously I've talked a bit about the connection with this area and kind of, you know, this area saw its most iconic building made in, you know, in that period. But also in the UK, um, over the last, certainly last 20, 25 years, there's been a renewed interest in this period and particularly in this period's music and a real revival of... um, orchestras and choirs that um, perform this music on period instruments so the kind of instruments that would have been used um, at the time that this music was new at the time that you know the equivalents to Bryn um, Harrison and James Weeks who I've just talked about were you know actually writing the dots on the page it was 1714 and when Christchurch was being built and you know it was it was that Hanover the Georges and as I say, it, it, there was a kind of very strong connection with Germany and with, with the kind of middle Europe at that time. And, um, you know, Handel is a really kind of central example of a composer that um, uh, links Germany and, and, and Britain. You know, we, we think of him as a Londoner, but, um, you know, I think in lots of ways one might think of him as, as German as well. That always has a handle, I always think, of a very triumphal sound. Yeah. What, what is the spirit that infuses Baroque music then? What, if you, could you pin it down or is it, is it not possible? I think you can't. I think, you know, it's, it's really broad in the sense that, you know, if you, if you said um, to anybody now, how would you characterise music that's been written in 2014? It, you know, you could talk about a particular thing, but you wouldn't be able to describe it as a whole. Um, obviously, historically, certain things fall by the wayside and certain things r- rise to the top. And there's an interesting thing to look at what does rise to the top and um, what gets performed far less. And, you know, some a, a lot of material gets lost. But um, I suppose if, if you were to stereotype, you might say that there's a real, there's a joyousness to it. And that, like I was saying, culturally, there was... Um, it captured a kind of spirit and a sort of sense of optimism and and, and kind of renewal and looking outwards. And um, I think if you want to hear that, you can hear it in a lot of music from that from that period. Mm. Well, I understand now. Uh, having said that, why the space would need to be just right to, to you know to keep the reverb going and uh, allow the the space for those sounds to be felt as well as heard. Well. We're edging towards the end of our allotted time. One other highlight, if you will, and then we'll, we'll give the website where people can find out about all of this stuff, because as you'll listener have detected, there's a huge menu to work through here and uh, one easy gateway for all of that. What's your final pick? Final pick is final day, Saturday, 21st of June. Something 
completely different uh, Crowd Out. It's a piece written by an American composer called David Lang. He was inspired when he went to watch Arsenal play a decade ago and was listening to the crowd chanting and um, making what he heard as music together. And it's taken him a decade to write this piece. Um, It's for a thousand untrained voices, so people like you and I can participate. It's 40 minutes long. It's being performed in Birmingham, Berlin, London and New York over the space of a few months. Our performance is on the 21st of June. It's going to happen around Arnold Circus on the bandstand on the Boundary Estate, again completely different era from some of the periods that we've been talking about but again architecturally and um, physically a really interesting part of, of Tower Hamlets. And a very good example of that urban renewal that we've been talking about earlier on. Yeah fantastic example. I mean the first of its kind that is the first social housing and you know, it's, it's still standing. Um, so this piece um, for a thousand people to perform is called Crowd Out and it's about, um, I suppose it's inspired by the idea how do I feel when I'm in a crowd? How do I feel when I'm standing? Um, I know that I'm, I'm me, I'm individual but I'm within a crowd and it explores that and I have heard um, uh, parts of the piece and um, I think it's going to be an absolutely extraordinary event and well worth um, catching up with if you can Well, only one question remaining then how do we catch up with all of this? Spitalfieldsmusic.org.uk or 0207-377-1362 Real life phone numbers nobody does that anymore Apparently some people do Wow and we're very friendly here. <laughs> Give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, reminder that the uh, summer festival uh, run by Spitalfields Music, the 6th to the 21st of June uh, this year, so get your skates on, I dare say, tickets by the time this goes out will already be uh, flying off the, off the ship. Tickets don't go on a shelf. They'll be flying out of whatever tickets they are contained in. A rubbish ending to the podcast. Um, <laughs> There we go, Pogson. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. ended on the high there. Yeah, I think we did well. <laughs> I, should just I assume re- you'll edit those things out. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Abigail Pogson. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea in a Baroque style. I'm in Quentin Wolf.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.